welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Holy Spirit of God, Lord Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father, we recognize that uh, we come together and so much that you've been doing throughout the week, so many powerful encounters people have been having as they see you at work in their work. They see you at work in their relationships. And the ways in which you show up and through your Holy Spirit, you churn within us and open our eyes to new sights and engage us at levels and we see you at work. And so we come to this, uh, these few moments today where we hopefully can take truth from your word and, and bring it to life in a way that is inspiring and engaging and compelling as we continue to reflect upon the goodness of life in your kingdom. So we submit ourselves to you and pray for your hand upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would stand for our one-verse scripture reading, it comes from Romans chapter 12, and it is verse 2. I will be bouncing around to other passages as we go, but... um, I want to start with this, and we'll return to it throughout. This kind of sets the framework of what we're going to talk about today and what we have been talking about in this Radiant Life series. Romans 12 and verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I have been slowly and rather unambitiously, meaning I'm not trying to get through it, reading a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's by a man named Peter Scazzaro. He is a pastor and a writer and a reflector on things related to ministry and life with God. And the first sentence of the first chapter reads as follows. Christian spirituality without an integration of emotional health, can be deadly to yourself, your relationship with God, and to the people around you. And unfortunately, I know exactly what he means. And so do many of the people around me. Scazzaro is saying that an important part of a radiant life, as we have been calling it in this series, a life growing in love and joy and peace, is a healthy emotional self, Christ-likeness in our emotions, we might say. And without this, he suggests Christian, Christian spirituality can actually be toxic to ourselves, and it can wildly distort our relationship with God and slowly suffocate those around us, especially those who are the closest to us. Genesis 1 and verse 27 tells us, Human beings are unique pieces in God's art gallery because we are created, it says, in God's image. But sin and its curse mars that image. And so God takes the initiative, and Paul says in Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Then Colossians 1.13, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so now, in the moments of our days, in the moments of our lives, 
the journey we are on, Ephesians 3.23, we do our part, 4.23 I believe it is, we do our part to be made new in the attitude of our minds and to put on the new self to be created like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the cycle is complete. For now, the sin-marred self is being renewed in the Imago Dei, renewed in the image of God. It all started with being created in the image of God, and then sin marred that, and now Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, is working right now to restore and renovate us so we reflect the image of God like we did before sin entered the human scene. It's quite a story, actually. And whatever our story was before Jesus reached us with his long arms of love, this is now our story. And when you really sort of step back and just kind of let it lay there and sort of hit us again in a fresh way, it really does ignite a kind of pervasive joy. You kind of step back and go, my goodness, if this is true, this sort of sets the framework of everything else. Made in the image of God originally, and currently, right now, in the ongoing process of being restored in the image of God. But here's a question that moves us into today's topic of this Radiant Life series. Does God the Father have emotions? When Jesus walked this earth as God in the flesh, did he feel like you and I feel? Was he moved in his emotions at various times like we are? Certainly we are. Beautiful sunset, a roaring ocean moves our emotions. The death of a loved one breaks our hearts and is emotional. Reuniting with those we love whom we haven't seen for a while stirs up feelings. Reading a powerful paragraph in a book or watching a poignant scene in a movie triggers emotion. Now, I consider myself to be a rather emotional guy. It may not seem that way, but when I'm with my family or my dog Gus or I'm listening to music or I'm reading a well-written book or I'm just reflecting on life sometimes on a Sunday night or Sunday afternoon or I'm watching a small child live unhindered and just kind of be in themselves, I feel all of that very, very deeply and it often gets to me. A few weeks ago, Julie and I rewatched the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. And when Wilson the volleyball with the painted face shook loose from Hanks's makeshift ocean raft and Wilson started drifting away and Hanks noticed he was no longer tethered to the raft and he started to panic because he wasn't sure he could get to Wilson. And he ultimately couldn't reach his friend. I mean, come on, if this image isn't in your head and you're not reaching for Kleenex right now, there's something wrong with you. That aching music playing in the background. We watched this again just a couple weeks ago and it got to that scene and I was crying. And as Wilson, the volleyball, floated away, I glanced over to see if I had a crying buddy that day. And Julie was crying as well. 
over a volleyball named Wilson with a painted face on it in a fictional movie. It sounds absurd because it kind of is, but it points to this idea that humans feel. And I am drawn to this God we follow who weeps over a city that he loves. And I'm drawn to this God that we follow who grieves with his beloved friends. And I'm, uh, I'm drawn to this God who is about to heal a guy who's got a withered and unusable hand and he gets distressed and he gets angry at the religious hypocrisy and the bigotry. So he sees the city of Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday and he realizes what it could have been and he starts crying because it didn't become that and it wouldn't become that. He's with Martha, Martha and Mary and Lazarus after Lazarus has died. He's with his beloved friends and he sees all this agony and he hears all this agony and Jesus cries. And then he's in the temple, in the synagogue, and he's about to heal this guy whose hand doesn't work. And the Pharisees are giving him all this religious nonsense. And we're told that Jesus was angry at dis and distressed at them. He feels. So the last several weeks, we've been talking about a radiant life. Christ forming and transforming the various dimensions of ourself. So we keep being restored to be the way we intended to be and radiate his goodness. And last week, we talked about embedded thoughts and the way our minds, governing ideas, shape and even drive our actions and reactions and words. And today we are talking about feelings. We're talking about our emotional self and how our emotions can actually be transformed. And the things deep behind those emotions can actually be changed. Our friend Dallas Willard writes, healthy feelings properly ordered among themselves are essential to a good life. So if we are to be formed in Christ-likeness, we must take good care of our feelings and not just let them happen. So let's start by talking about the need to feel. Since we were created in God's image and God feels, Jesus felt Feeling is then part of the natural human experience. We were made to feel, and we need to feel in order to feel alive. People jump out of perfectly good airplanes and dive into ocean depths where jaws prowls and ski down mountains at crazy speeds to feel the thrill of pushing the edge. See, feeling is essential to living so essential when we don't feel when feeling fades and hides when a relationship grows cold and the feelings fade when boredom starts to take over when life starts to resemble death we go looking for feelings and when we go looking for feelings we often look in all the wrong places so the search for feeling is oftentimes behind the widespread functional addiction to things like pills or whiskey or pornography or reality television or money or sex or relationship or social media and you name it. We want to feel. And I would say we were created to feel. And when we don't, we go looking for it. 
We need to feel, but one wise writer said it well when he wrote, feelings are good servants, but disastrous masters worth thinking about. When we train ourselves to satisfy every feeling without pause, or when we think we have the right to satisfy every feeling, trouble inevitably looms. But we need to feel. Secondly, let's talk about brain science and feelings. Now, this is way over my head. This is way beyond my pay grade. I have never been good at science, and people will explain it to me. Julie's a nurse, and she'll start talking about stuff scientific, and I get lost before she gets the first sentence done. So this may be clunky. This is not my stuff. I'm going to do the best I can to synthesize what others have helped me understand. But in Scazzaro's book, he quotes a friend who had left the Christian faith. And this friend once asked him this rather piercing question. She said, why is it that so many Christians make such lousy human beings? That just stuck in my head because it's so tragically true. Why do Christians make such lousy human beings? It's a really good question. And I don't pretend to have all of the answers or to have the full answer. But part of the answer is because many of us, I think, have devastating and paralyzing emotional trauma we received from our families of origin. So early in life, we experience things like rejection, conditional love, or we experienced a climate where emotion was minimized and we were told, you know, real men don't cry and things of this nonsense, or we experienced abandonment and a million other wounds that are now carved into our core being. And today, I would suggest, some Christians are lousy human beings because we live out of that raw and unformed emotion buried so deep within. We react out of these triggered emotions. And just like Scazzaro said, we devastate those around us and we devastate ourselves. And this is what makes us such lousy human beings. I've talked about this a thousand times over the years, but anger was at one point in my life carved and etched and tattooed at the core of my being. It was who I was. If someone were to have authentically said, well, let me tell you who Mike is based on who he is on the interior, there was a time in my life, an extended time, where people would have had to have said, if they were going to be honest, he's angry. Anger was my go-to emotion because I didn't know how or I didn't want to deal with the real emotion underneath the anger. Then one day, I pulled the clothing of Christianity over the top of my anger. I had an encounter with God, and I yanked the clothing of Christianity over the top of my anger, and I professed love, and I professed loyalty to Jesus, but I still did not know how to bring Jesus into the deeper emotion of my anger. So I was a Christian, I say without hesitation, who was a lousy human being. So then we come back to Romans 12 too. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, and here's the key phrase, by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We hear the phrase transformed by the renewing 
of your mind. And we might think, Paul is saying we need to fill our heads with Scripture. Bam, bam, bam. Radiate the lousy with Bible verses. And that's part of what it means, perhaps, when we think of or hear the phrase, renewing the mind. And that is part of it, but it's not the whole story. See, the word mind in the Bible is best understood as the center of both our thoughts and our feelings. So when we hear mind, we should not think like the organ of our brain. We should think thoughts and feelings and the way these two dance together and the way these two are inseparable. So if my mind is going to be renewed, I need to invite the Spirit of God to change my thoughts and to change my feelings. So go back to anger. Anger was in my mind. It's in my body as well. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. But anger was in my mind. And it was a convergence, a washing machine of thought and feeling and feeling and thought. And transformation happens by unearthing the real story of what is happening in those various thoughts and emotions. See, there's a whole field of neuroscience that studies the brain and its capacities and its ability to change. And theologians, Christian theologians, have for a while now used the research of neuroscience to better understand spiritual formation, why some people grow and others don't. And again, I know very little about this. This gets into the science stuff, which means it's over my head. But Tim Huey gave me a little primer on this this week, and Evie DeRus has taught me much over the years about this. So here's my dumbed-down explanations. Explanation: Our brains work through neural connections. Now, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds good. These neural connections begin early in life, like in the first couple months of life. It's not something we try. It's something that's happened. And every one of us that is in this room or sitting online has millions of neural connections going on all the time. So early on in life, we are laying back in our crib. We can't talk. Our feet are doing this. We're looking straight up. And we start crying. And a few minutes later, our mom or our dad comes in and leans over the crib and looks into our eyes and in a reassuring voice says some nice words, some comforting words. And then they reach down and they pick us up and they hold us close. And shortly thereafter, we're drinking warm milk. Now, here's the thing. In that process, all sorts of neural connections are beginning to form. And with repetition, those neural connections would be strengthened. And all this kind of stuff that's happening all the time, especially early in life and into our teens and even into our 20s and really throughout life, but early is the most important. All of this has a profound effect on shaping who that baby is is going to become. And how that baby is going to feel in this rather daunting universe. Attachments are formed and strengthened that give this little child comfort and peace to go into this rather daunting universe. Or attachments are not formed. 
they're not established. And then that child has to walk into this daunting universe without that wonderful life-giving attachment to those who claimed to love it. And this neurology has much to do with who we are today and with how the Spirit of God brings transformation to our minds and to our emotional selves. Now, all of that might seem a little bit up here. It is to me. And so Tim Huey gave me this fantastic metaphor. He said he heard this somewhere, and I'm like, man, that really resonates with me. So think of it this way. And again, this is not mine, but it works. There's a hill at Graceland Park in Racine, Wisconsin. I've gone there hundreds of times. Let's call it the year 1975. And it snowed outside. And when we used to go over to Graceland Park and climb up the hill when it had just snowed, the first time sledding down Graceland Park when, it, when the hill was full of fresh snow was really hard to do because there was no track. So the trip down was slow like this and the sled often stalled and there was a lot of pushing it forward instead of sliding down. There's a lot of getting to the bottom and going, that's not really what I had in mind when I started off on this ride downhill. So you climb all the way back up to the top and you try again. And the next time it gets a little bit easier. And once the track really starts to etch into the snow and there's finally a groove, sledding gets easier and easier and the ride gets faster and faster. And eventually you just run back up to the top and set the snow in the, or the sled in the track and give it a slight nudge and off it goes down the hill. No problem at all. This is how our brains are working all the time. Sled tracks are being formed. Connections are being made. Neuro connections, if you like fancy talk. Grooves in our brains that become automatic responses that we've learned. And repeated use of the sled tracks embeds them deeper into our minds. Renewing of the mind. And these ideas and these emotions and these reactions simply become part of who we are because it's a track we've sled down hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times. Simple example. Julie comes home from work around 7.15 and she says, hi. But her hi, according to my assessment, lacks effervescence and spark. She seems distant and uninterested and catching up on the day. And immediately within me, the sled starts to go down a very familiar set of tracks that were cut years and years and years ago and confirmed years and years and years since. And that familiar set of tracks goes something like this. I start to, in my mind, thoughts and feelings, oh, she's mad at me. I must have done something wrong. I mean, I've got an incredible body of wrong I've created in this life. I must have done something. I know I messed up somehow. That would explain the lack of effervescence in her high. And these governing ideas, these thoughts produce a feeling. We can call it fear or we can call it anxiety. And this fear or this anxiety sets off an array of reactions 
and responses and the resp- and the these reactions <laughs> I'm all over the place here. These reactions and these responses turn into preparations I'm making in that conversation. Before I even know the truth of what is going on, what's happened? My emotions have become my reality. My fear becomes the truth about what is going on before I even know what's going on. And so I am in flight. Or I turn to fight anger. Or I freeze and go, oh boy, I don't know what to do. And all of this is happening even though, this is funny actually, I don't really know the story. These are well-worn sled tracks that I end up in because they're so well-worn. So eventually I ask hesitantly, um, everything go okay? And I'm kind of doing it like this. Everything go okay? And she'll say, oh yeah, just had a long day and need a little decompression time. And I go, oh, that's what I figured. Even though I didn't figure that. Not even close. You see this? And at that point, the sled rides over. I'm at the bottom of the hill. So I get off the sled. I climb back up to the top of the hill. And I wait until a similar set of circumstances unfold again. And down we go. But through the Spirit of God at work within, I need to find a new track if I'm ever going to experience a radiant life. See, this is where we're getting down into the detail. Our thoughts and narratives and governing ideas and our emotions become the well-worn tracks, sled tracks in our minds. And the responses and the actions and the words and the feelings that emanate from these shape our lives. And here's the question. How does the Spirit get into the sled run and help us change course? Help us find a new set of tracks? Rewire the neural connections. Because that's the frontier of spiritual transformation in our mind. That's the frontier of a renewed mind where thoughts, and today especially, emotions are being changed. Let's talk about thinkers and feelers. I'm sure in some of your minds this has come up since this, has, this topic was here. You heard we're talking about emotion today, and some of you had the thought, well, I'm more of a feeler. common question we ask each other is, how are you feeling? But as we've been in this series, this sounds kind of silly because it is, but a, another way of asking the question, what I think is a pretty good question, would be, imagine start asking each other, well, how are you thinking today? How are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling this is, well, how are you thinking? We keep in the bigger picture of God and his goodness before our minds. Is the kingdom in front of our minds? As we live out our faith in daily life, how are we thinking? It's the kingdom before our minds. Now, we tend to classify ourselves as either a thinker and each other, as either a thinker or a feeler. Kind of a one or the other. I'm more of a feeler or he's more of a thinker. 
This is the familiar left brain, right brain paradigm. As it goes, the left side of the brain is analytical and linear and logical, just the facts part of our brain. The right side is visual, intuitive, creative, imaginative, artistic, we might say. And one of the challenges around the topic of emotions is that those who are left brain, the thinkers, tend to underplay emotion and even minimize feelings, while those who are right brain, the feelers, tend to overplay emotion, consider them infallible, and make decisions based solely on emotion. Well, in the journey toward a radiant life in Christ, it's not a matter of being a thinker or a feeler, but becoming a thinker and a feeler. Because we are all both, and we are healthiest when we are pursuing both. In fact, the renewing of the mind, where thoughts and feelings are, cannot be accomplished unless we are pursuing both, thinking and feeling. So some of us need to stop acting in response to our feelings without first doing some thinking, and some others of us need to stop acting in response to our thinking without first doing some feeling. Thinking and feeling. Think of it this way. How do we learn to feel as Jesus would feel if he were facing a similar situation? I'm not sure I've ever asked that question of myself with any seriousness. How do we think things through the way he would and feel things through the way he would? See, thinking and feeling is not an either-or proposition. We were made in the image of God for both. God thinks and God feels. So it seems reasonable to say humans think and humans feel. And much of the Christian experience, as we know, gets lived in the unresolvable paradoxes and tensions of the both and, not the either or. We live in the and more than in the or. My mom died on January 7th of 2021. And when she was on her deathbed, she would occasionally have these moments of clarity. And at one point, she was laying uh, on her bed at this facility, and I was standing at the foot of her bed. And she kind of woke up, and she looked right at me. And I was, like I said, standing at the end of the bed, and I just looking down at her. And as she looked at me, she grinned. And these are the words she said. She said, we had fun, didn't we? And I'm thinking, are you kidding? I mean, I just say that now. And I go, wow, I'm never going to forget that. And I was incredibly sad when she said that. I felt the weight of the finality of it all. And I still do, just writing it out here and repeating it to you. But I also know the bigger narrative unfolding at exactly the same time right there in that room. Jesus was going to take care of her because she was in him. And all would, in fact, be well. And she would be okay. And we would be okay. The sadness was and still is real. I felt it and I feel it. And the bigger story is real. I think about that bigger story, and I'm learning to know this big story better. See, emotional health is learning the and. It's learning that it's okay to be sad and hopeful. It's okay as a follower of Jesus to be lonely until it hurts and comforted. To be afraid and at peace. 
So in order for us to be spiritually healthy in our emotions, we have to be able to live in the paradox of integration and disintegration. So even as we feel pain or sadness or anger or fear, there are bigger truths worth trusting and inching toward. And over the course of time, if we are grounding ourselves in the truth of Jesus and his kingdom, if Jesus and his kingdom are set before our minds, then our emotions will be converted so they better align with this thought of Jesus and his kingdom. And we will grow from disintegration in our emotion to integration. So one more thing to talk about. We'll just call it say it and surrender. Now, this is kind of heady stuff. Tim Huey sent me a video that I thought was really helpful. I think we've got it queued up and ready to roll. This will kind of explain far better than I've been able to explain what we're talking about, and then we'll wrap up. So it's, the link for this is in your app as well. If you want to follow it online, I don't think we'll be able to show it to those watching online, but it's something to look at now, and you can look at it uh, later on. So can we roll the video? There are studies that everybody should know about that I summarize with the phrase, name it to tame it. So if, if you're really agitated, you're frightened of being rejected again, or you're really upset with what happened, or you're angry or whatever, in Maria's right brain, I can tell you this, in addition to right and left, there's, now please excuse these incredibly simplistic statements, but there's an upstairs brain and a downstairs brain. Now, I'm fine with that for this parenting book, but believe me, my, you know, my other foot is in science, and the scientists would see that and go, what? But the fact is, there's a cortical rim where a lot of this higher stuff goes on, and there's everything below the cortex. So if you take your thumb and put it in the middle of your fingers and put your hands over the top, give us a try. Um, this would be in my brain like this, see? And so this would be the cortex where you do all your thinking and planning and all that kind of stuff. If you lift up your cortex, you have everything below the cortex, which we call the downstairs brain. So that's reasonable. Downstairs is just a substitute for the word subcortical, which freaks parents out. So downstairs. And it's the, the upstairs brain is the cortex. Okay? So you lift up your upstairs brain, you go to your downstairs brain, that's the subcortex. It's the limbic area, and it's the brainstem. These are very ancient circuits, responsible for things like emotion and motivation and fight, flight, freeze reaction and your arousal states when you're awake or asleep, stuff like that. So what happens at that moment is if we did a scan on your brain, we would say that your right amygdala in your limbic area and your downstairs brain, downstairs. the downstairs brain is super active. I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. And studies show that if you have this kind of presence and, uh, uh, of mind, I can get Maria's left brain to name the feeling from the downstairs brain. And you can show that she will squirt soothing wow. neurotransmitters down to her right limbic area, right downstairs brain, and calm it hmm. down. So, you know, we've quickly summarized that entire set of studies with name it to tame it. I mean, so that's all parents need to know. In the book, we didn't put any of this stuff, but everything is backed up by science, believe me. So what does that look like? Um, I, I come to you so, and I have a problem. What do you... So here's what it looks like. So let's say you're agitated about being rejected by your friends. So I give you the hug. All I'm doing at that moment, I'm not naming anything. Mm. You don't jump to that. First, it's connect and then redirect. So 
That's, you know, we have these strategies, connect and redirect. So the idea is, first I connect with my right hemisphere. That helps soothe your whole system, but you're still nervous about going back to school. So then I say, well, let's talk about it. And you say, well, this happened, and she was there, and she was going to go to the party, but she didn't want to go, and then they turned away from me. They wouldn't have lunch with me. And I said, it sounds like you're really feeling a big feeling of fear that when you go to school tomorrow, no one's going to want to have lunch with you. So we're naming fear. And I thought I was angry. And maybe, maybe you were angry, too. But, but it helps yeah. to have the fear. Right, but you have to, to actually name the, the accurate yeah. emotion. Yeah, I hear that. Right? Because we could say, well, you're feeling excited to go for popsicles, yeah. but that's wrong. Yeah. Right? So it's not just yeah. naming anything. And when you name it, it registers as true. That's what I'm getting at. Is sometimes we think we're angry, but in fact we're sad or we're right. fearful. So, so yeah. by you saying fear, it might in fact... That would calm yeah. your, your downstairs brain. Yeah. Right. So at that moment, then we're using, first, connecting with the right hemisphere helps the system get stabilized. You don't feel alone. Mm -hmm. The next step is to name it to tame it. So I'm going to now help you with my left brain because I'm going to use both my hemispheres together and go, gosh, I wonder what my daughter's really feeling here. And I'm not going to tell you what you're feeling, but I would say something like, I wonder if you're feeling scared. And then in Maria's brain, the whole system calms down. So fascinating stuff or not, depending on where you're coming from with this. But uh, this idea of naming the emotion. Now, you heard what he said. He said, name it to tame it. The problem I have from a Christian perspective with taming it is what we're doing is we're putting a leash around it and saying, okay, you come over here, we'll tie it up. And when we get into the, when we talk about what Christ wants to do, it's not tame the emotion, it's transform it. It's actually change it. But there's great power in naming the emotion because there's a, a part of rerouting the sled down the hill, if you will, and creating new tracks when we name these emotions. Now, again, we start to get to this. I've had enough conversations with people where sometimes I start rolling. Isn't this a little squishy? Call it squishy if you want, but Jesus felt. God feels. So it might go something like this back in the scenario I described earlier. Julie just walked in with a less than effervescent high. And I can feel my mind thoughts and feelings starting to tip the sled over to go down that set of well-worn tracks. And yet, because the spirit's up to something and I'm in cooperation mode, I get a little nudge on the shoulder that says, now's the time. Find a new path. So maybe I take a deep breath, say a little prayer in real time, and say something like, you know, Julie, I know you just walked in and I'm confident much of this is my stuff. But I'm feeling anxious that I've done or said something to make you angry or disappointed in me. And I got to tell you something, whether, you know, some version of that, I've seen the power of this. What that guy said is true. You name it, and just by saying the emotion out loud, the anxiety starts to subside. He's talked about this something that gets released and it starts oozing down and calming the thing. I don't know what that is, but I like the idea of something massaging my brain and calming me down. And I've actually watched this work. So here's the thing, and you can kind of pick up on this and go, well, boy, that's, that's like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. When we talk about cooperating with the Spirit of God and the work of transforming our emotions we have to constantly remember that the Spirit of God is not like Harry Potter. Whoosh, whoosh, gone. It's hard work. 
It requires practice. And it doesn't happen overnight. I want to ask you to bow your heads, if you would, for a moment. We're going to end with Jordan coming up, and he's going to lead us in a song. And frankly, it might be a song that you find a little bit out there. And I want to tell you why. You know, through this COVID thing, I know and you know that people's emotions have been deeply affected by COVID. Loneliness, isolation, feeling sad, um, various events in life that haven't been able to happen and the sadness that comes from that. And again, one of the things we try to prioritize at Oak Hills is being authentic about what's happening in various moments of life. And this idea that we want to feel has been met with the last year when about the only thing many of us have felt is sad, disappointed, lonely. And sometimes, as I said earlier, that compels us, pushes us to satisfy our feelings in unhealthy ways through wine or through whiskey or through pornography or through binge-watching of television or who knows whatever else. We medicate our sadness by looking for something that will make us feel something other than sad. And it's good for us to just acknowledge this and recognize that this is a reality in this life, and it's been especially a reality this last year. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of who you are and the way in which you invite us to these places of rawness and honesty, brokenness. Would even be so bold to ask your spirit to be in our midst even now. Just at work in the quietness of our own heart, tinkering. Maybe prodding a bit. Doing the work of renewal. 